Good afternoon. Trust your bellies are filled and your minds are still working. Sometimes those two things don't go together. Well, we were going to look at three principles this morning. We looked at one. We were going to look at three this afternoon. I guess we're going to try to look at five. I don't know if we'll get five through or not, but we're going to see what we can do. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you the start of this service, again, blessed with the privilege of opening your word, looking together into it for what it would have. And Father, I pray that as we study together, as we learn from you, that our hearts would be open and that conviction would settle in and, and take root in each heart here. Bless these young people. Thank you for each one. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we want to continue looking at living life with purpose and the principles that give us a foundation to live a life with purpose. We looked at love last session. We're going to start this session this afternoon looking at honesty. And again, we're going to look at some scriptures first of all, Matthew 5, 37. Matthew 5.37 says, But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Jesus' own words, and he's saying very simply that when you say yes, it means yes. When you say no, it means no. There's no other words necessary to emphasize that no or to emphasize that yes. Uh, he's also teaching against swearing here. Like, there's no reason for you to say, I absolutely swear to tell the truth. That, that, that is not the way of the Christian. The word yes for a Christian means yes. And it's very clear, Jesus is saying, that anything more than this is evil, is of evil. So when your yes means kind of yes, or sort of yes, or partly yes, then that's more than Yes. And that's of evil. That's what Jesus is saying. Second verse I want to look at is in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. The emphasis there is speak every man truth with his neighbor. Put away lying. Lying is an old man behavior. And we see that in the next verse that we're going to look at in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 9. It says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Two more verses yet, one in Revelation. In Revelation 21, verse 8, sorry. The list of things here says the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Honesty 
is a principle that ought to govern the life of every Christian. Hebrews 13, 18. One more verse there. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. In all things willing to live honestly. When you think of honesty, the probably the first thing and the majority of things that come to your mind will have to do with speech. Not speaking lies. That's actually too small or too narrow a definition when you're talking about honesty. Living an honest life, living in honesty, is a, goes much beyond that, beyond just your speech. The word hypocrisy is a contradiction to the principle of honesty. You're sitting here tonight, as a, tonight, this afternoon, as a well-dressed, well-behaved Mennonite youth. Is that what you are? Or is that an expression of hypocrisy? You see? When what we express in our lives is not coherent with what we are, in other words, the two don't agree, then that's a form of lying. It's a form of hypocrisy. It's in contradiction to the principle of honesty. The scripture also uses the word guile. And this is where we play gymnastics with our words. We don't outright lie. We don't say directly an untruth. But we lead people to believe a deception. We lead them astray. We willfully lead them to believe something that isn't true, whether that's about us or about someone else. The the word guile in Scripture is, again, in contradiction to honesty as a principle of life. I thought of the other verse in Revelation that condemns liars to hell. It says, Whosoever without that loveth and maketh a lie. You think about that. It doesn't say speaking a lie. It's whoso, whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Honesty defined. How would you describe telling the truth? Honesty. It's telling it like it is, and it has a word, the word telling in there, again, an emphasis on speaking, but it's all of your life. Is it telling it like it is? Truth is a very, very important thing, and we have the privilege of living it out. Honesty is life and actions governed by truth. Honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. What is truth? Well, that's a question Pilate asked of Jesus. It's a very important question. It's telling it like it is. And it's a coherence between our statement and reality. If I say something, if I tell you this is made of plastic, I can make that statement. I can even probably convince you of that statement because many of you really wouldn't know. But it wouldn't be coherent with reality. This is made of wood. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to say that's true. But whatever it really is, if my statement doesn't mesh with what it really is, then I'm not telling the truth. If I'm describing my life, I'm giving a testimony of where I'm at as a Christian. And what I'm saying is not in coherence or doesn't connect perfectly with what I really am, then I'm not living in honesty. And honesty is a very, very powerful principle. 
it was easy for me to know which principle I wanted to give you first, but going forward over the next seven that I'm going to give you here, I'm not giving them to you in necessarily order of importance, but I know that for you to be effective as a Christian, you're going to have to embrace the principle of honesty. I'm going to give you a few examples. Some of these examples are not positive examples, but that's, we have them in Scripture as well. Think of the story of Achan. You remember after the children of Israel went up and took the city of Jericho, tremendous miracle God had taken the city for them. They blew on the trumpets and the walls fell down. And then they were going to test or take another city, a little city of Ai. They sent some spies over there to check out the city and the report came back to Joshua, well, don't bother the whole army. That's a very small city. We can take it, just a few of us. Just send some of us over. We'll take it. We'll be back by lunch. It'll be no big deal. So they sent 3,000 men. And they went to Ai, and they were soundly defeated. 36 men, I believe, were killed. And they came back to Joshua, and Joshua is distressed. He falls on his face before God, and he says, what? How can this happen? Again, in my own words. I'm your servant. We're your people. We're in here to take over the land of Israel, and here we are in defeat. How can this be? And God says something very interesting to Joshua. He says, get up off the ground. The children of Israel have sinned. And this is a whole another story in itself. But notice he didn't say Achan has sinned. It's profound. You could study it sometime if you need something to study. But they did discover that Achan, when they took Jericho, they had been instructed very clearly not to take anything from that city. It was vile and to be destroyed by fire. But Achan saw this beautiful garment there that he just had to have. And he saw a few pieces of silver. And he wanted to have those. So what did he do? He slipped them in his pockets or wherever he slipped them, and he took them home. And isn't it interesting? You'd think he'd want to set those up for a trophy, right? Wow, I just had to have those. I want to show everybody. What did he do with them? Dug a hole in the middle of his tent and buried them. They were really helpful down there, weren't they? And you know what happened? Those things God knew about, even if no one else knew. Achan wasn't living in honesty. And you know the rest of the story, how that family by family, God separated out the family of Achan, and they were judged for their lying, for their deception, for their dishonesty. You see a similar story in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira. A powerful story. In Acts chapter 5, again, we won't turn there, but you have a time where the church had a lot of needs because it was growing rapidly. And there were many people that were coming to the church and had to leave all behind and were joining the church and had material needs. And there were people, wealthier Christians, who were giving of their possessions to support that expanding church. Barnabas was one who had sold a piece of property and given the entire amount to the disciples. And Ananias and Sapphira must have seen this and thought to themselves, wow, Barnabas got a lot of press out of that. Maybe we should do that. So they had a piece of property and they decided, well, we're going to sell ours. Then they came up with a little scheme. We're going to give some money to the church and we're going to pretend that was for the entire property. But we're going to keep back a part. So just so you're clear, imagine that property sold for 150000 and they said, we'll give 100000 to the church and everybody will think that's for all of it and we'll keep 50000 for ourselves. Are you with me? That's what they did. And then they took the 100000 into the disciples to Peter and laid it down at his feet. 
And they were just waiting for everybody to say, way to go, Ananias. And what does Peter say? He says, why hath, I don't have the words exactly, but why has the devil, however, convinced you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he fell and gave up the ghost. He died right there on the spot. A few hours later, Sapphira comes in. And Peter asked her a question, is this the price that you sold the house for? Yep, that's all of it. And she fell down and died. Why? Because they failed to withhold a principle of honesty. God cares about honesty. God requires honesty of his people. I thought about Abraham. Twice in the Bible, Abraham lied about who Sarah was. She was a beautiful woman. And he was afraid when he would go to certain places that they would kill him because she was so beautiful and they'd want to take her for, himself, for themselves. So he lies. He says that, well, she's my sister. And you can read the stories there in Genesis, but it's another example of one who didn't tell the truth. From history, honest Abe, Lincoln. I don't know if that's entirely justified or whether it's not, and there's a lot of different opinions about it, but one of the ways that Abe Lincoln earned that reputation as a young man, as he was working at a store as a clerk there, he would, if he discovered that he had made a mistake in returning the change to a person, he would personally walk it back to that person, no matter how far he had to walk. Sometimes he walked miles to give back a few pennies because he had made a mistake at the till. And he got this reputation as honest Abe. Is that your reputation? I'm going to tell you about one more man. He's from my own community. I'm not going to tell you a lot because I don't want you to know too much, but many times this man has made promises to me. And they're like pouring water into a sieve, okay? They don't hold any water. He doesn't, his word doesn't mean anything. The last time I spoke to him, I was thinking about it as I left. You know, there's only one thing in the world that we can control, really, when it comes to value. You can't control what your house is going to be worth tomorrow. Many of you don't have houses, or what your car is going to be worth. Or, you, know, you have no control of what the markets of the world are going to do. You have nothing you can do about it. But there's one thing you can control, and it's vitally important to success in living life with purpose. And that's the value of your word. If your word means what you say, that's something only you can control, and it's one of the most valuable things you can ever have. So friends, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Make honesty a principle that you build your life upon. All right, it's your turn. How does this principle of honesty play out in your lives? Too much in the belly?
Mm-hmm. I remember a time as a youth, I was in a, a restaurant where they had TVs, and we were there for the one purpose of watching a hockey game. That's why we were there. Not proud of that, but that's what we were doing. We were sitting there, a group of Mennonite boys, and someone from the community came up to us and started asking us questions. He knew who we were. He knew what we stood for, even if we didn't. And he asked us a whole bunch of questions. By the time he was finished, we were all feeling about this tall. But you know what was happening? What we were doing in that moment was inconsistent with what we believed, what we said we believed, what we stood for. And he just, he revealed it with his words. So yes, our actions matter. And our actions matter even when we don't necessarily understand exactly what we're doing or why we're doing it. It still matters. Anyone else? All right, I'm not going to beat you because we don't have time for beatings today. We're going to look at integrity, principle of integrity. The scriptures, first of all, in Proverbs, I've got a couple verses there. Proverbs 11, verse 3. says, the integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Back in Proverbs 4. Verse 25, it says, let thine eyes look right on, let thine eyelids look straight before thee, ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. First Peter chapter 3. Verse Says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. <clears throat> Let me just back up a little more, a few verses, to verse 10. It says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, <coughs> excuse me, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil. And do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Having a good conscience, integrity. And Luke 16. Verse 10, Jesus says, He that is faithful 
In that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Integrity in the little things. Trust is built on trustworthiness. Trustworthiness is expressed in the way you do the little things. So in everything you do, do your best to be 100% trustworthy. As Honest Abe was doing when he went walking for miles to give back the pennies, what was he doing? He was expressing his integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. It's choosing your actions based on values rather than personal gain or on principles, we could say. It's consistency of actions. It's the state of being whole or undivided. I ought to think of when you mix a cake, you throw in a whole bunch of ingredients and you start stirring it. And for a little bit, it's a blend. You can see a lot of different colors and there's a lot of different things. You see streaks of flour, you might see streaks of egg. But as you continue to blend that, it's consistent throughout. It's got integrity. That's what your Christian life needs to have, integrity throughout all of life. You can't be one thing one time with one group of people and another thing another time with another group of people. When you think of integrity, don't just think words and honesty and being honest with your words. That's a part of integrity, sure. But integrity is being consistent throughout all of your life so that if you are met with a certain situation here in your home community in front of your minister, you would react the same way as you would far away in another place on vacation with your friends. You would respond the same way. That's integrity. And what it means is it builds you into a person of character that's consistent in what you do. And people around you can trust that they know how you'll respond to certain things because you're a person of Integrity, a person of character, someone who's consistent throughout. Let me give you a few examples. The story of Job. Job was a godly man who was tremendously blessed. You read of his wealth, you read of his family, you read of all of that at the beginning of chapter 2, or the chapter 1 of the book of Job. And then in chapter 2, you see that things begin to dramatically change for Job. And God's hand was in that. The devil's hand was in it. And you see that Job had everything that he had been given taken from him. All his possessions were gone. All his crops were destroyed. His children were destroyed. Everything was taken from him. So you see, in in this thing of integrity, you see the circumstances dramatically changed for Job. So while he was blessed, while God was giving him much, while he had a family that was loving him and was serving God, while that was all happening, he was a man of integrity. What would happen when the circumstances dramatically changed? What would happen when the possessions are all gone? What would happen when it seems like the blessing of God is gone from his life? How would he respond then? Even his wife told him to curse God and die. The question was put to him, will you maintain your integrity? What did Job say? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was a man of integrity. Though the circumstances changed dramatically, the outcome, the way Job lived, didn't change at all. Think of Daniel. When 12-year-old Daniel was taken from Israel, we don't know exactly 
what his age was, was somewhere around 12 or 13. When he was taken from Israel and hauled off to a foreign land, thrown into a foreign culture, exposed to the evils of that culture, what would happen to his integrity? You think about a 12-year-old boy in that situation. You see, when the king's meat was put before him, it wasn't a rule given by a priest back in Jerusalem that kept him from eating the king's meat. wouldn't have worked. It wasn't his parents who had said, don't do that, don't do that, although they might have had a part in building his integrity. The Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart. What is that? That's a principle. There was a principle of integrity. Part of that principle was integrity of what governed his decision to refuse the king's meat no matter what. I thought of Paul. And you might wonder, well, what does Paul have to do with integrity? Paul's life was one of consistency. What Paul was, was what Paul was. He was a man on fire with passion for God, who would do all he could to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from place to place, and that's what he did. What would have happened if Paul would have came to Ephesus on his missionary journey, and he would have said, you know what, this time I'm just here for vacation. I'm, I'm out. I'm not preaching. I'm not witnessing. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just here, relaxing. What would have happened? See, if you knew Paul, you knew Paul. And Paul was who Paul was. Paul didn't change from Ephesus to Corinthians to Colossia to wherever else he went. He didn't change from one place to the next. He was consistent. I also thought of the three Hebrews. When they stood, when that image was raised up and they were commanded to bow their knee and worship when this music played, what was it that made them remain standing? They weren't the only Jewish people in that crowd, most likely. After all, they could have bowed their knee, but, you know, stood up inside, you know, like that little boy that his dad was telling him to sit down on the bench and he didn't want to sit down and he didn't want to sit down. Finally, a dad made him sit down. And then he said, well, I'm still standing up inside. You can probably guess what happened next. He was sitting down inside, too. (laughs) You see? When we, they could have just bowed their knee physically and, you know, kept inside their mind that God is the king and God is the one that we're worshiping. They could have done that. Obviously, some of their friends must have done that. But their integrity wouldn't let them. They stood. They stood up as a, black sheep in a crowd of white, if you will. They stood out like a sore thumb. There they stood. Why? Because there was a principle of integrity that governed their behavior. They were going to worship God there in public, just like they worshiped God in private. It wasn't going to be any different. You remember Daniel, too, in that story a little later, when they made a decree that everyone who worships the God of heaven is going to be thrown, other than the king of that land, would be thrown into the lion's den. What did Daniel do? Did he close his window when he prayed? No. He did the same things he did before. He was a man of integrity. Do you have some real-life situations where your life meets with the principle of integrity? Anyone?
Yeah, it's really hard to respect someone who can talk all the right talk on a Sunday morning. But on Friday night and Saturday night and every other day of the week, they're a completely different person. You just can't respect them because you don't know who they are. Well, actually, you do know who they are. But you know you can't respect them. Anyone else? Let's look at modesty. What is the first thing that comes to mind when I put that word up? Someone. Dress. Dress. Okay, that's way too small a focus. All right, I'm going to tell you that right now and so that you can pay attention to what the scriptures say when we read them. More specifically, probably most of us even think about women's dress, and that's not what modesty is. It does express itself in that one small area, but it expresses itself in many, many other ways. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Principle of modesty. Romans 12, 3 says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. To think soberly, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In Philippians 2, we have Jesus' example here. In verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That phrase, lowliness of mind, you know what that is? That's modesty. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That, that verse is a little bit clumsy in its expression of the thought. What it really means is that Jesus was truly equal with God. It would have not been robbery for Jesus Christ to claim the Godhead as his right, because that's who he was. So it wouldn't have been robbery for him to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm God. I don't have to put up with this lowly business down here on the earth. That's not for me. It would have been right within his rights as a God, as part of the Godhead, to say that. But, it says, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. There's a key word that goes along with modesty. Humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ expressing here in that mindset the mindset of modesty. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> Paul asks the question that we would do, wise, be, do well to ask ourselves. He says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what dost thou that thou dost, what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Another key word to understanding the principle of modesty, that word glory. That's what it's about. Immodesty 
or pride, closely related words, draw attention to ourselves, draw glory to ourselves. Modesty reflects that glory, as we're trying to do with this image, reflects the image of a pawn to see the image of a king, okay? That's what modesty is about. It's reflecting the glory to Jesus Christ. Because after all, it's him. It's about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our gifts or your gifts or your looks or anyone else's looks. It's, it's about God. Because after all, he gave it to you. What do you have makes you differ from another? 1 Peter 5. Picking up a little further on that thought. Verse 5, it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And this phrase here is what drew me to this verse. And be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Ladies, you probably spend a lot of time in your life deciding what you should wear. Okay? Been around a few ladies in my life. I know that's part of the routine. You know what? Every morning, and every one of us, male and female, get up. The first thing we ought to do is be clothed with humility. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. And the sooner we understand that as a principle that governs all of our life, the more effective we're going to be in the Christian kingdom. Modesty is about humility. James 4, 6, similar verse. In verse 6 he says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Modesty, uh, the desire to blend into the background, the desire not to be glorified, that's what modesty is. The desire to conceal any glory that we may have. That is a desire that is essential to success. Again, I use that word loosely because we use success about everything. in the ki- What I mean when I say success is being faithful in the Christian kingdom. If you're going to live a victorious Christian life, you must have modesty as a governing principle in your life. And in this verse, it explains to us why. And this is not a message about pride or about humility, but I want you to understand this. You might want to write this down. Humility is the currency in the kingdom of God. Humility is a currency in the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is the word grace here. What is grace? Well, some people have this impression that grace is this supernatural thing floating out there in space somewhere that... Every once in a while it comes by and touches you, and then it might touch you. No, grace is not that, okay? Here's what grace is. Grace is the power of God to do the will of God. That's what grace is. Jesus Christ came to the earth full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to empower you to live in victory. What did he give you? Grace, the power of God to do the will of God. Now, what does this verse say if we understand those words? It says, and this is the only group of people in the Bible that I know of, where it says that God resists a group of people. God resists the proud. 
if we're immodest or if we're proud, then God resists us. In other words, when we come to him and we say, God, I need help with this. God, I need help with that. He says, not out of my storehouse, you're not getting any grace. God doesn't say it quite like that, okay? Don't get a wrong impression. But he does resist the, the, those who are proud. But, and this is the important part, he giveth grace to the humble. Now, in your life, how successful are you going to be as a Christian without grace? Is that going to work out for you? Uh-uh. We desperately need grace. And you know what? God's storehouse is full of grace. He will give you the grace to live in victory over whatever your temptations may be, but only if you're humble. Think of it this way. I've gone through many airport security checkpoints. Every once in a while, they really check your bags. Picture it this way. is When God is checking your bag, your bag is your life, okay? If he opens the bag and he finds pride, he probably can smell it already before he opens the lid. He opens it up, and he finds pride. You know what he does? Closes a suitcase, passes you on. You're on your own to face life. Okay? What's going to happen the first time you face temptation after that checkpoint? You know what's going to happen? You're going to try and you're going to try to do it in your own strength and you're going to fail miserably. But if at that checkpoint he opens your suitcase and he looks through your luggage and there's no pride, there's only humility, then he stuffs your life with grace. Every corner of that suitcase, he's jamming in the power of God to do the will of God. And you know what happens when you go through that checkpoint on down the road, the first time you come to that temptation, it's, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can live in victory because the power of God is dwelling upon you to do the will of God. That's why it's critically important, young people. You can never be successful in your Christian life without humility, without the principle of modesty governing your life. I am convinced that many young people, many older people, struggle specifically with habitual sins because they have pride in their life. God can't give grace to a person with pride. He can't do it. It's against his nature. He gives grace to those who are humble. Principle of modesty. So what is modesty? We looked at that verse already. Modesty is gratefully using what we have in a way that God alone is glorified. Do you see where duress connects with this? God created you. God created some of us, some of you, more beautiful than some of me. That's just the way it was. But when you use your beauty, young people, especially young ladies, to draw attention to yourself, you're doing a thing that is wrong. You're doing a thing that is contradictory to what you ought to be as a Christian. You see, modesty is gratefully using what we have. You should not be ashamed that you're beautiful. That's not the point. But you ought not to use your beauty to draw attention to yourself. Conducting my life in ways that reflect the king, not my own accomplishments. It's the absence of vanity. Vanity is pride. Vanity is a 
feeling of accomplishment or worth that somehow there's some intrinsic value to us. We're just the pawns in this game, okay? It's about God. It's about His glory. Let me give you a few examples of modesty from the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. He was probably one of the most gifted evangelists that ever lived. He started churches and more churches. Everywhere he went, a church would pop up. And yet when you hear Paul speak about himself, what does he say? He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. In fact, he goes further. He says, I'm the least of all saints. You know why God used Paul so powerfully? Because he was a humble man. Because when God opened Paul's suitcase, there was no prize. There was no desire for power, no desire for prestige, no desire for position. There was only a man who was willing to give all glory to God. Think of the man Moses. There are reasons why we are sometimes critical of him for being so bashful or so uh, backwards when God came to him at the burning bush and said, you're going to go to Egypt. He said, oh, I can't go. I can't speak. But you know what? That same I can't speak mentality is what made Moses the meek man that he was. He was not one to stand out front and say, look at me. This is what I can accomplish. That wasn't Moses. Moses was a humble man who led the most powerful exodus in the history of mankind. He led two million people from Egypt to the promised lands through the wilderness. I wrote this. I can't give you any names or they wouldn't, they wouldn't like it. But I trust you all can think of people who have accomplished great things, like Paul or like Moses, who seem sincerely unaware of their own accomplishments. You know what? That's a pure, a sure sign of modesty and humility in the life. They're serving God. That's all they care about. They haven't, it seems like they haven't even noticed what's happening behind them. Okay? It's behind them. They don't, they're not looking at, look at what I accomplished. That, that's not their focus. Their focus is on God and one in front of them. And one where they want to glorify. It's for him alone. We're in real life. Other than in the area of dress. Does the rubber meet the road in the area of principle, modesty? Anyone? You're still thinking, right? Yeah, you're right. I'm glad you pointed that out. A modest person is keenly aware of where they came, where their ability came from. 
and they're grateful for it. They're grateful for what God has done. Grateful people are fulfilled people. Grateful people are people living life with a purpose. Anyone else? That's a real good point. Paul was not superhuman. He was very human. But he was very committed to the will of God. Our abilities are not all the same. And you know, God doesn't expect the same things from every person, but he expects the very best that we can bring from every one of us. <clears throat> all right, we're going to move along. I'm going to ask you to stand up for a minute because I see some of you are thinking with your eyes closed and I find that hard to do. <clears throat> I'm going to look at a few scriptures again. Romans 12, verse 2. Very familiar verse. The principle of nonconformity. And there's a, probably a chunk of you that as soon as you saw that word, you went like this. You know, just kind of shrunk away from it like it's some great evil. It's not an evil word, okay? It's not a four-letter word. It's not a bad word. It's actually a biblical principle, okay? Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed. That's where the word nonconformity comes from, from this word, verse. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, notice how the will of God connects here with nonconformity. It's very hard to discover and find the will of God when we live like the world. You know what? You'll never find it. You can't do it. You need a renewed mind, a transformed mind, and that transformed mind will transform your actions, which will allow you to be in a place where you can understand the will of God. You may be seated. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You talk about an intimate relationship between the believer and between his God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and I will walk in them. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, it says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. If you just keep your finger there for a second, it made me think of this verse in Ephesians 4. Look over there. It's describing first in verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Then here's the word but. But ye have not so learned Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, you have the but. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. I was in chapter 2, reading verse 4. You see, to understand the principle of nonconformity, we must understand that there is, in this life, there is two kingdoms, okay? There is two lifestyles. There is two kings. There is two different ways of living. There is the way that you used to live before you were a Christian, where you pursued your own desires, your own passions, your own will. That's what you went after. And many of us grew up in a Christian home that maybe kind of squelched that desire and held that desire in a certain boundary. But if you think back at all what you were like before you were a Christian, you'll be able to identify that that was working actively in you just like it was in me. But when that but happened, when God came into your life and you were born again, you changed from one kingdom, one way of life living for self to another way of life where you became a servant of Jesus Christ. And this is back to the core of the question I asked at the very beginning. Do you expect the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? Friends, there is a vast difference. Why? Because everything about us is different. We think differently. We have different goals. We pursue different things. There ought to be a difference. When there's not, shame on us. It's a reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. Because there is no similarity between the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Era. Night and day difference. Okay? That's the basis of the principle of nonconformity. That's why I say it's not a bad word. It's the fact that you have united to a king who is from a different place and who has different priorities than the king who controls this world. And we don't have time this morning or this afternoon or any time today, but <laughs> the devil is in control of this kingdom, okay? At this point in history, the devil rules the earth, okay? Ultimately, God is the ultimate authority, and we can get our minds all bent on whether, how that works. We don't need to bother. But just understand, when you look around in the world around you, you see the works of the devil because the devil is working in those people. You are either a servant of the devil or you're a servant of Jesus Christ. That's all there is. There is no third category. Many of us probably tried for a time in our life to come up with a third party Maybe a new political party, we'd just be ourselves. It's not possible. When you honor yourself, you live for yourself, you're living for the devil. That's the basis of nonconformity, okay? Don't see it as an evil thing. 
See it as you connecting yourself to Jesus Christ, who is so vastly different from this world. Like the one bird sitting on a different wire, okay? Look with me at John 17, 14. Jesus, in his final prayer for his followers, the followers of that time, the followers of all time, those of us this morning who are following Jesus Christ, this prayer is for us. He says in verse 14 of John 17, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Does that indicate a difference? The world should hate you, okay? it doesn't hate you, maybe it's because we don't love Jesus enough. If we fit in with the world, that's a serious problem for the Christian. The world hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of this world. In James chapter 4 and in 1 John chapter 2, we won't take the time to look at both of them, but turn to James 4. Very simple statement, but a very important thing for us to recognize. It says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever there will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It couldn't be any stronger in that language. It's not simply saying that when you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's part of it. But the word there that's translated enmity actually means the cause of the enemy or the cause of the, the dis- disagreement. When we love the world, it causes us to be an enemy of, of God. Why is it then that we as Christians are continually drawn over to what the world has to offer? It's sad. It really is. But friends, young people, make the principle of nonconformity to the world, a part of your identity in who you are, and you will find meaning and purpose in your life. I'd like to look at one more verse. I guess I didn't get it up there. Luke 16, verse 15. When I am faced with a question in my own life about whether this is part of the world or whether it's not, whether it's for the Christian or whether it's not. This is long before your time, but I remember when the phenomenon of the Harry Potter books hit the market for the first time. And there was a big debate in some Christian circles of how that fits or where that fits. Is it right? Is it wrong? What should we do with it? This verse I've always brought to mind when I think about these things. John 16. Sorry, did I say John? I mean Luke. Are you in Luke? Good. 16, verse 15. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. Notice that justification. That's mental gymnastics, trying to make something okay that really isn't okay. But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Just put this down as a mental note. Whenever something is extremely popular in the world, it's probably not of God. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. 
And really, it makes perfect sense because what's popular in this kingdom that is governed by the devil is not going to be popular to the Christian. It should be popular to the Christian. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. What is nonconformity? Nonconformity is refusal to conform to societal pressures of this world. It's the result of following a different king and prioritizing a different kingdom. Okay? I don't know if I've emphasized that enough, but don't think of nonconformity as a negative word. It's simply that your focus is in a different place. Nonconformity is also the natural distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian. And I call it natural. That's a bit of a scary word. It's not doesn't happen without Jesus Christ living inside of you. But when you've been born again and you've been changed into the image of Christ and you're conforming to the image of Christ, nonconformity is the, the gap that develops automatically between those who are non-Christians and those who are Christians. Does that make sense? That's what nonconformity is. Now let me give you a few examples. Turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm just going to take a couple from here. Abraham and Sarah. And before I look at their lives, I just want to read a couple verses. Hebrews 11, verse 13. It's describing all of the saints before. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Catch this verse here. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That's what creates nonconformity. The priority of a better country, the priority of another place. When Christians look beyond this life and emphasize the priorities of the next life, it will create nonconformity. It will automatically produce nonconformity because we're not, we're not following the same mold as the world. Now, Abraham and Sarah did exactly that. When God spoke to them, God spoke to Abram, and he was out in the field. And I tried to imagine what that conversation must have been like where he came back in and told his wife, Sarah, we're leaving. Oh, where are we going? Well, I don't know. We're just leaving. Because God hadn't told them where they were going. But they were going. And they were going where God told them. The land that they were living in, their own country, was not so precious to them that they couldn't keep moving on. I thought about Moses, and again, this chapter emphasizes nonconformity in the life of Moses. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Those two verses 
Verse 25, where you choose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. And in verse 26, where you esteem the riches of Christ, sorry, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. When we do that, just like Moses did that, we are expressing nonconformity. That's what it is. Moses said, I see the people of God over there. What were the people of God doing? They were living in slavery building bricks from mud day after day after day. Rather, he chose that. He chose to identify with them rather than the treasures of Egypt. What were the Egyptians doing? Well, what were they doing? They were living the high life, okay? And Moses said, no, I want that. Why? Because he could see a better country. He was pursuing another place. That's what nonconformity is. Where does nonconformity conflict with real life in your lives? Okay, choice of music. Very good. at all? Throw out some other things. I'm sure you know. Sports. How much and where and when and with who and what kind of place. Yep. Friends. You can be friendly with people in this kingdom, the devil's kingdom, okay? But you can't be close friends with people in this kingdom and expect to succeed in this kingdom. It doesn't work. This is how I know if you're still thinking. Those are good areas. What else? Sorry? Yep. How we spend our money. You know what? That's only getting started. The older you get, the harder that gets. Books we read. Yep. How we use our time. Very good. You know what? The truth is, just like many other principles, this affects every area of your life. Because you know what? The kingdom of the world has something to say about how you ought to do almost everything. So does Jesus Christ. What they're telling you is different. Nonconformity is that difference between the two. Can you bear with me for one more? I know we're a little late already, but let's look at one more principle and then we'll be done for today. Principle of submission. Scriptures. Romans 13. Verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. 
And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnations. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. 1 Peter chapter 2. We notice in that passage we just read that all power or all authority comes from God. Principle of submission. I think I still have a first Peter in my Bible. Chapter 2, just noticing a few different groups of people that he speaks specifically to. Verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. So that's kingdoms of this world, the authority of the rulers of the world. Verse 18, it says, Servants, or employees we could use in our society, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. I just want you to notice there that submission is not only for good leaders. In the first section there where I just read, it talks about the king. You know who the king was at that time? The king was Nero. Nero was one of the most evil men who ever lived. As an example, one of the things that Nero would do when he had a party, he would gather up enough Christians to light up his yard, and he would get a Christian, he would stand him in a barrel, fill the barrel with wax, and light the Christian on fire, and the Christian would be the wick for his candles to light his parties at his house. That was Nero. And yet, Paul says, be subject to the king, or Peter says, sorry. Servants, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Froward literally means unreasonable. Ever, ever had an unreasonable boss? Friends, I'm not here to tell you that you need to submit to doing something that is contrary to God's word. Okay, That's never required of the Christian. But if he asks you to carry cement bags for three hours straight, then carry cement bags for three hours straight and do it gratefully. You know what that is? That's an expression of your character. Submission has to be a principle for you of your life in order for you to be faithful and in order for you to find fulfillment and meaning in your life. In chapter 3 of First Peter, it says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. In Ephesians 6.1, we won't turn there, but it says, Children, obey your parents. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, Submitting yourselves one to another. In other words, there's a, an, a sub, uh, form of submission that ought to happen between all of us. It's not about my will. It's not about your will. We're a, gr- we're a group of believers. We're a body in Christ. And there's a submitting one to another that happens. 1 Peter 5, 5, we read that earlier. It's submitting one to another as well. What is submission? 
It's the act of accepting the authority and control of someone else. It's a surrendered will to God's plans. It's the complete absence of rebellious resistance. I want you still to be thinking, because this is something that's very, very important to the Christian life. Submission is something that seems to be going the way of the dodo bird. Remember that one? It's extinct. More and more in our society, and I'm afraid even in our churches, different forms of rebellion are acceptable, are tolerated. And if you want to find fulfillment and meaning in your life, You need to have submission as a governing principle of your life. It's critically important. I thought of a few examples again. I thought about Mary. Do you remember when the angel came to Mary and told her this fantastic story that even though she had never known a man, she was going to have a baby? It didn't make any sense to Mary. wouldn't have made any sense to anyone. But she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, Be it unto me according to thy word. You know what that is? Submission. I thought about Naaman. Remember he had leprosy and he had the maid working there from the land of Israel and she told him about the prophet back there and he went to see the prophet because he wanted to find a cure and Naaman was told to go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and Naaman didn't want to do it. Because why should I wash in this muddy river and then I'm going to got all these beautiful rivers back home? Why can't I wash back home? I'm not dirty. That's not the problem. I have leprosy. You can just hear his resistance building, right? Rebellion. Finally, one of his servants came to him and convinced him, you know what? You came all this way to hear what the prophet has to say. Why don't you do it? Why don't you try it? And he got down, and this is where the submission finally happened. There was a lot of rebellion before it. But he goes to the river. And he dips himself in the muddy Jordan River seven times. Didn't make sense to him. It usually doesn't make sense to us how it's going to work out. But Naaman was cured. I thought about Jesus. And again, we could have had him as an example for every one of these points. Jesus Christ, in perfect submission, he says, I came to do the will of my Father. That's what he did. And when he was faced with the most difficult time of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was crying out for the cup to be removed, he says, each time, not my will, but thine be done. That's why he's our Lord. That's why he's our Savior. I know you're getting restless, but I want to look at one more passage of Scripture in number 16. If there would ever be a poster boy for rebellion, Korah, would be it. And it's a powerful story that probably many of you don't really know. I just want you to know, or I want you to see here in this passage, how God views rebellion. In Korah's, in the story here, and I won't read it, I was going to, but it's going to take longer than for me to tell it because I can't remember it all. In verse 2, you see, well, I'll read verse 1 and 2. Now Korah, son of, son of, son of, 
took men, the end of verse 1, verse 2, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So here you have Korah leading a movement, but Korah was not on his own. There was 250 men who were well-respected in the Jewish community, princes of renown, it says, well-known, okay? They were gathered together, and look what they do. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And he said to them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. That cry from Korah is not that different from the cry of every rebel that has ever rebelled in the history of the world. Do you see what he's saying? In my own words, he's saying, what makes you so great, Moses? Do you think you have a monopoly on truth? Like, how do you know better than I know? What makes you holier than we are? Why can't we have a voice just like you have? Okay, I'm putting that in my own words. But that's what he was saying. You've taken too much to yourself. You made too much, Moses, of your authority. And notice in verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. Why did Moses fall on his face? Was he insulted? Was he hurt by Korah's words? No. I believe Moses knew that what Korah was about to do or was doing in this rebellion was about to be a disastrous thing for Korah. He fell on his face, and the story goes on where Moses said to them, Okay, we'll see what God says about this, and we'll put it before the Lord. And he, they took these 250 men, they each had a censer, and they stood in a row with their censers burning with fire. And Moses and Aaron stood on, the separate, on another side, and the Lord spake, verse 20, this chapter, unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou wroth, be wroth with all the congregation? God was so angry with this rebellion, he was ready to destroy all the children of Israel. But they were given a chance. He said to the congregation that Moses said to them, Get away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all their families. Get away from them. If you stand with them, you're going to be consumed in my wrath. And then Moses says, If these men these three men who were leading this rebellion and all the other 250 men, if they die a normal death, then there's nothing wrong with what they did. But if there's something new that happens, something you've never seen before, and he says specifically, if the ground opens up and takes them living down into the ground, then you'll know that, that they are not in their place. Again, in my own words. The congregation of Israel stepped to the side. Moses and Aaron stepped to the side with them, and the ground opened up, and... Korah and Dotham and Abiram and the 200, or not the 250 men, and their families were swallowed up down into the ground. The ground simply opened up and they disappeared and the ground closed up again. The 250 men who were standing in a row with their little fires burning, God sent fire from heaven. Burned them to a crisp. There was nothing left but their censer. And they gathered up their censers 
And they made plates to cover the altar with those censers as a reminder to the children of Israel about what God thinks of rebellion. It's an unbelievable story, really. What is God doing? Why is it important? Why is the principle of submission so critical? God is authority, okay? God himself is authority. God has set up authority. And when we rebel against his authority, whether that's our parents, whether that's the government, whether that's our church leaders, wherever that authority is and we rebel against it, we are acting out of our own will. We're going against the will of God. And you know what? The story actually doesn't end there. You would think that after the children of Israel just saw God consume these men by swallowing them up and burning them to nothing, that they wouldn't ever dare question Moses' leadership again. But literally, the next day, it says in verse 41, On the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Really? Like Moses just split the ground and dropped them in? Moses sent fire from heaven and burned them up? Really? That's what they said. And they were again challenging the authority of Moses. Do you know what happened? Moses turned to Aaron. He said, run, run, get your censer and take it and go to the, order, to the altar and offer a sacrifice because the plague has already started. Moses knew that God would again be angered and would re- re- respond to that rebellion. And what happened is there was a plague. People were dying on the spot. And Aaron's running to the temple to offer a sacrifice or to the, to, on the altar. And he stays the plague. It was stopped. But before he could stop it, before he could run to the altar, God had destroyed, killed 14,700 people because of their rebellion. I'm only telling you this story because if you ever need a reminder of what God thinks of rebellion, I want you to go read Numbers 16. You can put a poster up in your room with Korah on it if you need the reminder. Listen, friends, this affects every one of us. It affects me. But get this through your heads, clear as a bell. God cannot and will not ever bless rebellion. Many, many things in our churches, some organizations, have started out of rebellion. That's a scary, scary place to build from. Make submission, submission to authority, submission to God, a principle that governs your life. Anyone have a thought of where this principle of submission collides with your life? Never does, right? Rebellion to church leaders and to the church will stagnate the life of the church. That's true. It will destroy your relationship with God. You see, God doesn't change. And unfortunately, he's not opening the ground to give us reminders of what God thinks of rebellion. 
but I don't believe his view on rebellion has changed. Anyone else? Yeah, we can put up a pretty resistant attitude even if we don't be openly rebellious. And the truth is authority gets abused sometimes, okay? That's the way it is. That doesn't change the reality that submission ought to be a principle of our life. All right, I'm going to turn the time back to Derek. Thank you very much, Glenn. One of the phenomenons of uh, us humans is how rapidly we forget. We forget how we feel about something. We forget facts, no matter how important it once was to us. And uh, so this week, um, the rest of the afternoon and the coming year, let's make an effort not to forget this to-do list that is rapidly growing and will grow tomorrow as well. <laughs> All right, we have a, another door prize winner. Kimberly Zimmerman is the name. They can get the door prize in the back afterwards. Um, okay, we have some volleyball planned in the gym after this. So we will dismiss here after a prayer and head on over there for some of that. Uh, are there any other things that I need to say, you youth committee people? Nope. Okay, let's stand. And Glenn, could you pray for us, please? Let's pray. Father, we come to you at the close of this service. Pray that you will bless each one here for their attendance and attention. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember what we've learned from your word. And Lord, give us a desire to live out your principles in our life. Father, I pray that you'll bless each one of the youth. Pray that you'll give them a good afternoon. Pray that you'll keep each one safe. And Lord, that you would use us in your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.